0: Thank you for listening to the Sunday School Teaching Ministry of Pastor Luke Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. All right, well, good morning, everybody. Good to be back here talking about the amazing... Amazing book of Romans here. So we're going to be in Romans chapter 2, so you can head that way. We're talking about the Christian Constitution, the Magna Carta of the Christian faith. That is the book of Romans. Um, it's one of the greatest pieces of literature, maybe the greatest piece of literature ever written. Uh, I want to start this morning by showing you a picture. Have you ever seen one of these? Grandma's paddle. Can you, Are you able to change that? Okay, let's see. (laughs) Have you ever seen one of these? Who has, by the way? Raise your hand if you've seen one of these before. Okay, not too many, all right. So, um, let's see, there we go. So that is what I remember as a child. Um, Grandma had one of these hanging at, at her house. Uh, from a very young age, I grew up seeing that on the wall. And, uh, but, but the day came in my childhood when I found out that this was not her actual paddle. <laughs> 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 I, I don't remember what I did. It was probably my mouth that got me into trouble. But, uh, and I thought I was a pretty wonderful child and a wonderful grandson. You still are. <laughs> But, uh, but there was a day where I found myself on the painful end of her actual paddle, and I, I, like I said, it wasn't the one on the wall. I, I do remember as a child, though, when Grandma had to do this, I think it was only one time she had to spank me. Well, she probably should have many other times, I'm sure, but, uh, but I do remember being shocked. Because <laughs> I vividly, <laughs> this was Grandma's paddle, and you know, that means she loves me, she, she's gonna let me get away with murder, but that was not the truth, and I was shocked that I was getting spanked by my grandmother. I must have been really bad. Uh, one of the thoughts I think was, how grandma, how, how could you do this to your best grandson? You know, <laughs> I am very special. How could you do this? This, this concept, this idea here that, we're, that I've just presented is and was, really, the mindset of the Jewish people with God. God, we know you need to punish everyone and you should punish all these people out there that are such sinners. But thankfully, God, we are your chosen people. We're special to you and so thank you that there's not really any punishment for us. But Paul is gonna correct that thinking. Paul is laying out really here as we're gonna look and see an open and shut case that all people, all people are sinners before a holy God. And that includes every single one of us in this room. And when Paul says everyone, he means everyone. And this is the important doctrine of depravity we're gonna talk about today. Uh, in Systematic Theology, the book by Henry Thiessen, he gives some biblical features of depravity. I wanna show, give them to you real quick. Depravity is a lack of moral righteousness. It's a lack of holy affections toward God. So I don't have, I'm born, we're born in a state where we don't have any moral righteousness. We don't have any holy affections for God. We don't seek God. We, in fact, we run from God. We have a corrupt moral nature. We have a bias toward evil. And, we could say in that statement there at the end, a mankind is unable to do enough to conform himself to the law of God. So when we talk about the depravity of man, these are the things we're talking about. We, are, we just have in us a corrupt uh, nature. We are infected with a sin disease and it affects every part of us. And Paul here in the first few chapters of Romans is helping everybody see that they are a part of that, those depraved people. Uh, we all are guilty before a holy God. Why, because in, why was Paul doing this? Why is Paul spending so much time trying to convince everybody that they're sinners, that they're depraved? Because it's actually harder than you think to convince somebody of that. And everybody, in, us in here, we often just don't think we're as bad as God says we are. You know, I know I've done some bad things, but God says, no, you don't even realize. I heard somebody say it's like, you know, we're, we're kind of the type of people who will go down into the gutter and see a, a homeless person there laying and sleeping in, their, in the gutter and we'll go lay down and measure ourselves next to them. Uh, the idea is, you know, uh, oh, well, see, I'm better than this person. Uh, but that's, that's comparing. We need to stop comparing with each other We need to compare our righteousness with God's righteousness. And when we do that, we see that we all fall extremely short. And that's what Paul is going to get to today. Because until you can admit the bad news that you're a sinner, that I'm a sinner, you cannot receive the good news of Christ's salvation. Until we receive the bad news and really get it and really understand it, we cannot receive the good news. Depravity, the doctrine of depravity, is such an important doctrine. It's the foundation for all of salvation. So <clears throat> the world is gonna tell us that we're born basically good and it's our environment that corrupts us, but God says no, every man is born in sin. They, is, every person is corrupt from within, not from without. The things without us, the things around us make it worse, but it's from within that our corrupt nature comes. In chapter one, Paul clearly established that the Gentile hedonists are sinners, they are depraved. In chapter two, he proved that the moralists, those people who think that being good will get them to heaven, that they are also depraved. So the hedonists and the moralist, and now he's gonna go on and narrow in specifically to the Jewish people especially, his own people. And we could call them somebody who believes by obedience to God's law, they are going to get into heaven, then that would be, we, we could call, a legalist. So the hedonist, the moralist, and the legalist are all gonna be found guilty in the court of law. The Jews agreed with Paul to a point, as I said. Gentiles, yes, Paul, you're right, they are definitely depraved, they are wicked. But we are Jews, we're different. We have a special relationship with God. In their view, if, if there were some people that could just slide into heaven without Christ, it would, it would be the Jews. That would be the only people who could do that. Uh, we're chosen. We have the word of God. <clears throat> we have the sign and the seal of circumcision that connects us to Abraham and that covenant that God made to Abraham. So we are set apart. We're special to God. There's just something in us that God loves. And Paul's gonna address that in a very logical and masterful way. A very scriptural way, and by, by the way, many have said this, he is, this is one of the best logical arguments for something. S- some have said, I don't know if it's true or not, that they used to use this in law school, this passage of scripture, in these, these past couple chapters, uh, to show how to, how to argue something logically. Because Paul is gonna bring all humans before the judge here, all humans before the court, and show that they're all condemned, everyone is condemned to death. And the case here is God versus humanity. So Paul is going to anticipate questions. And that's kind of how I did the outline today. There's these an- these questions that he's anticipating and then answering. And so the first question I see here is this: What is the Jewish perspective regarding u- their uniqueness? So what is their view on how unique they are in this whole in this whole world with God and and uh, and on the planet? Their duties and uh, who they are. So Paul is going to get right to that in chapter two, verse 17. Here we go. Behold, thou art called a Jew and restest in the law and makest thy boast of God and knowest his will and approvest the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law and art confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which has the form of knowledge and of the truth in the law. So the Jewish perspective, basically, Paul is putting out there is he says, you, it's, about, it's five things. He says, you know, you, we rest in the law. You say, we rest in the law. So in their minds, Paul is saying, you are saved by God's law. That's what you're resting in. And all of the people of the world, uh, Of all the people in the entire world, you are the ones who have God's law. God gave it to you. So you feel like you're the elite and you're resting in that. You also, it says here, have your boast in God. You brag that you know the God of the universe and we have a special relationship with him. You also say that you know God's will, meaning you have a better knowledge of what God desires and what God is wanting to do on this earth than the, than the other people, than, than, than all the others out there. And it's because you have the written word. And Paul, you know, obviously is saying here, just knowing something isn't enough. That's the, kind of the point that he's gonna get to. And it also says here that you approve things that are excellent or more excellent things. In other words, they felt they were more righteous than others because they had God's clear guidelines of right and wrong. They had it in a book. Uh, God gave it to them. They had it in the Ten Commandments. They had what God wanted, what was right, and what was wrong. Unlike all the other nations and the peoples of the world, and so we approve of more excellent things. We do more excellent things. We know more excellent things. And then, lastly, we are we are confident they might say in our position as guide. They saw themselves as the Jewish people saw themselves as the correctors of the world, the advisors of the world, the teachers of the world. Uh, the, the guides. We have God's law, nobody else does. We are the ones who are really superior and the elite in the world. And because of that, really, the Jews did have this holier-than-thou mindset. In fact, Tacitus, the ancient historian who, who lived about the same time as Paul, he, these are his words. He said, he's talking about the Jews, he said, among themselves, their honesty is inflexible, their compassion quick to move, but to all the other persons, they show the hatred of antagonism. In Alexandria, the Jews allegedly took an oath to never show kindness to a Gentile. William Barclay said the very privileges that should have produced saints produced arrogant, loveless egotists instead. See, Paul here was exposing the inner thoughts and the feelings of the Jews. Why does Paul do that? Well, part of it is he knows them. He was there, he was one of them. If there's anybody who could speak to this, and what was going on inside, the, inside of them, it was him. Paul even later had to say, I count all those things as dung uh, for the for the for Jesus Christ. So here's the indictment. And Paul is going to answer this question. Uh, what is wrong with this perspective? What is wrong with the Jewish perspective? And that's what Paul goes into next. Verse 21. Thou therefore, which teachest another, teachest another thou not thyself, thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal, thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery, thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege, thou that makest thy boast of the law, through breaking the law dishonorest thou God, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, as it is written, See, the problem with the Jewish way of thinking and their mindset is that they were hypocrites. They were just as bad as the Gentiles, but they were acting like holy people. They were acting like they were superior, but they were, they were just as depraved as everybody else. Remember, Paul is now bringing everyone, he's bringing the bad news, that everyone is under this uh, sense of depravity, this, the fact that we are all sinners. And so he asked these very pointed questions that if they were to answer honestly would bring great conviction. You who brag about having God's moral laws, do you ever steal? Do you ever commit adultery? Do you take holy things and profane them? Do you break God's law sometimes? Paul basically says, let's be honest, guys. It's well known that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you. In other words, All the Gentiles, everybody knows this, guys. The Gentiles know that the Jews are hypocrites. That's their thought. What a sad, sad place for God's people to be. The Jewish people that really are special to God in a way. And this is one of the saddest statements, I think, in all of the New Testament. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you. You know, several years ago, and I'm going to tell a personal story here, and I, you know, I'm not being anti-Semitic or anything like that. But a few years ago, Elaine and I took a trip to Ukraine, and we're we're with uh, Joel and there in in Ukraine. On the way back uh, to the Kiev airport, uh, it was it was like a special. It had just been a special holy time in Ukraine for the Hasidic Jews. This, the Hasidic Jews are a sect of Jews that are the ones who wear all the black clothing, the black top hats, and have the curls coming down. And you see, so they're very distinct. You, you know these are the Hasidic Jewish people. Um, and we were, we, and they, were all, they had all just converged on Ukraine for a special holy time. Well, they were all leaving and going back home the same day we were leaving and going back home. And there were thousands of them in the airport, crowding, and it was, it was unbelievable. They were, and I'm I gonna be honest with you here, this is our experience, they were the most rude, violent, angry people we have ever seen. Wow. They would not look at you in the face, anybody who was not part of their group or one of them, they wouldn't give you the time of day. They were punching people, we saw their fights, they were pushing people, they were crowding their way to the front of the lines, just forcing people aside. The, the, the sad thing was you know, as we're going through this, hoping we make it out alive, and hoping we eventually can get there because of all the fighting, and some of the Ukrainian people were there just trying to defend people in line, and it was just, it was was horrible. Um, It gave the reason, the saddest thing though, it gave reason for the name of God to be blasphemed. I mean, all the people around, standing there looking at them, I, I, I certainly thought, I never want to be part of whatever this is that you guys got going on, I don't know what you have going on, but I don't want any part of it, it's horrible. The Jews in Paul's day had the same problem. One of the things they did was twist their law, twist God's law to allow themselves to have loopholes to steal or to commit adultery. One of the most famous ones is one of the ones that Jesus brought up with the Jewish tradition that they had created on top of God's law called Corban. Cor- I, I just take my money and I declare it Corban. That means it is a dedicated to the temple, is dedicated to God's work. And by declaring my money Corbin, now I don't have to take my money and help out my parents, my aging parents who have need that I would help them. But no, sorry parents, this money is dedicated to God. And so it's, it's Corbin, so I, we can't touch it for you. And Jesus was saying, you won't honor your parents, that's also in the law, honor your father and mother, but you're doing this thing so you don't have to do this thing. And everybody knows you're hypocrites on this. and But then, of course, the Jewish people would go out and condemn everybody else if they broke God's law. And this blasphemed the name of God in front of the Gentiles. The Gentiles in the world here can spot a fake. They can. They can spot when we're a fake. These are good questions to ask ourselves as Christians every now and then, right here. You who uh, teach, do you do not teach thyself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? Do you commit adultery? We we get so angry at the people around us and what's going on, what about us? What about our hearts? What about where we are today? Do we dishonor God? Do we blaspheme? these These are sobering questions, but questions that are good for us to ask. One of the worst things about Christian hypocrisy, again, is that it gives occasion for the name of God to be blasphemed among unbelievers. We all know famous stories of Christian hypocrisy. And it, who in here would not say that we are sinners? But there are some great ones that are ju- or sad ones that are just so well-known. But one, one of them is not super well-known, but this was an interesting one that came up. Stuart Briscoe told about this. He tells about having to deal with a fellow Christian employee at, when he worked at a bank. And his, his fellow employee embezzled a large sum of money at the bank where they worked. But here, listen to this. The reason he embezzled was that he had two wives and two families to support. And then when he was apprehended and fired, he really stunned everybody, here was what he said. I'm very sorry for what I have done, and I need to know whether I should fulfill my preaching commitments on Sunday in our local church. <laughs> you know, Briscoe said that this, the following weeks there at the bank where he worked after his fellow Christian employee was gone, were some of the worst times at work, trying to defend what had happened, or not defend what had happened, but defend the Christian faith, really. The damage had been done. It was blatant inconsistency and hypocrisy. And everybody there was quick to dismiss his whole belief system. May the Lord protect us from dragging God's name through the mud. Paul was making it very clear that even though you Jews have the law, yes, you are very guilty because you're not living in obedience to it. But then some Jews might claim, okay, fine, Paul, but we are good with God because simply we have an Abraham connection. And that is proof in our circumcision. That's the sign that God gave us. That is a direct connection with Abraham. So something like this, this question, what about God-given sign of circumcision? Doesn't that make the Jew special to God? Paul's going to go into that verse 25 for circumcision verily profiteth if thou keep the law but if thou be a breaker of the law thy circumcision is made uncircumcision the jew believed that you know circumcision equals salvation he, he yes we might be punished a little in the world to come but we're but the jew is never truly lost So, but Paul says, listen, sure, your circumcision is profitable, and and listen to the argument that he's making here, it's profitable for salvation, only if you keep all of the other parts of the law perfectly. Sure, okay, circumcision, that little special sign God gave you, fine. If you wanna base everything on this outward thing your salvation on this outward thing, then you've got to do the whole thing. All of the law has to be fulfilled then perfectly if that's your plan. If you're disobeying God, do you think that God cares that you're circumcised? If you're disobeying God and you're a hypocrite and all these other, do you really think God cares that you have this outward sign of circumcision? It's like saying to your spouse, as long as you have a wedding ring on your, on your finger, you can be unfaithful to me. As long as you have that wedding ring, go for it. Do whatever you want, because that's what's really meaningful to me. It's the symbol that's important, not the actions. Paul is saying, come on. Circumcision is just an outward symbol. As soon as you break something in the law, then you're basically the same as an uncircumcised person. You're all on even playing field. You're all unrighteous. You're all sinners. In other words, you're a depraved sinner, just like a Gentile. Now, could you imagine the gasps gasps in the crowd when Paul is saying this to the the Jewish people? You're just like the uncircumcised Gentiles. Paul's gonna ratchet it up a notch. Here we go, verse 26. Therefore, if the uncircumcision, that is Gentiles, keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? So, in other words, if a Gentile were to obey the law, he would actually be more of a Jew than you, (laughs) Paul's on very dangerous ground right now. But he pulls the noose a little tighter, courageously, verse 27. And shall not the uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee, who by the letter and circumcision dost transgress the law? Listen, he's saying, if a Gentile obeys God's law, and you don't, not only is he more of a Jew than you, but... By his good behavior, he is shining a bright light of judgment on your bad behavior. Just by his actions, his good actions. In other words, the Gentile now sits in a higher place of guide and teacher than you. Can you see why the Jews tried to kill Paul so many times? I mean, this kind of stuff is gonna get you in big, big trouble. As a matter of fact, you go talk like this to any of our Jewish friends right now and you might get yourself in big trouble. Verse 28, for he is not a Jew, and this is very important. Paul Paul is going to describe the whole circumcision Jew thing from God's original plan here. For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. See, God never intended, ever, for physical circumcision to be the thing that makes someone acceptable in the eyes of God and and to give them salvation. It was always meant as an outward symbol of an inward spiritual act. Deuteronomy even says, circumcise your hearts. Circumcise your hearts, that's what God wants. Basically what Paul is saying is here, that circumcision does not actually make a person a Jew. Physical circumcision. This is actually a play on words here because in verse 29 the word Jew and how the the actual word uh, Jew itself means praise of Jehovah. So the idea here that Paul is giving is someone who gets the praise of Jehovah, someone who's gonna get the praise of God is one who is circumcised in the heart, in the spirit and not in the letter. You wanna get the praise of God, you wanna be acceptable to God, and circumcise your heart. In other words, a person who has sin cut out of their life. They have the sin cut out of their heart. Uh, it, just another way of saying a person who is born again through the blood of Jesus. It is Jesus who has come in and taken their sin away. That is the only way that someone could be righteous enough to go to heaven and their heart to be clean enough and be righteous in God's sight. Someone has equated circumcision to a label on a can. You can put a label that says, you know, you take a can, you can put a label that says peas on it. But if there are carrots inside, then it's a big fake. What matters is on the inside. What what God is trying to say here is, listen, circumcise the heart. The outward is just a label. It just says what's on the inside. And that's the same as baptism. It's the same as things like that. We can't rely on something physical, we can't rely on a label, we can't rely on something outward to get us to heaven. It has to be something that God has done on the inside. It's on the inside what matters. Now the next question that's posed for us that a Jew might ask then is, and it's put right there as plain as day in Romans chapter three, verse one, and that is, what advantage then hath the Jew? So Romans three, one, what advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Okay, fine, Paul, if you're making this case, then what's the point of being a Jew? Why would God go through all this? If we're all in the same sin boat and God wants circumcision of the heart, then what's the point of all that stuff he told them to do in the Old Testament? And what is the point of God speaking to Abraham and giving him a special covenant with his seed and his children? What is God's point in commanding physical circumcision? Paul's happy to answer the question. Verse 2. Much, every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. See, there are lots of advantages, he says, to being a Jew. But the most important advantage is that God gave them the oracles of God, or the word of God, specifically the promises of God. So when you think about it, what a special thing, and, and Paul, this is a very important argument for the entire book of Romans, and he'll go into that even later, but the Jewish people still have so many promises that are connected to them and through them. But what a special thing that God would entrust, think about this, what a special thing that God would entrust, his holy and perfect word with a certain family. He, out of all the families of the earth, he chose Abraham's family and his seed to carry God's word to the entire world. So yes, Jews, it is very, very special. You, have, you hold a very special place in the course of history and, in, and what God wants. But through this whole family, the whole world would know how God created the world, who God, who God is, what God is like, what, God, what he likes out of what he wants from people, what he desires for mankind, what worship actually is. God's plan for male and female. God's design for family and children. What sin is and what sin will do to man. True ethics and morality. How a government should work and how God would save the world most importantly. All of that came through the Jewish people, through his word, to the Jewish people and out from there. All of this is contained in the oracles of God. And so, I mean imagine your family be having and carrying the responsibility to take this word to the entire world. And in a sense it is, isn't it? Christians are given the duty of spreading the word of God to all creatures. We actually, our family, ourselves, we actually do have this responsibility. The Jews had such an advantage, but it was more of a duty than an entitlement. They saw it as an entitlement, so often. They saw the oracles of God as a privilege and a reason to boast, you know. Look at us, look what we got. But they needed to see it as a duty and a, as a big responsibility. By the way, just a side note here, I see this with what God has given to us here at the home church. I, s- I think about this often with this great campus and this building and all that God's given to us. It is a physical thing, but it is a tool. Amen. And I feel the weight that this is not just for us to sit back and enjoy and have a good time and you know, just talk and, and all of that. No, this is actually, there are hurting people that drive by every single day this place is supposed to just draw them like a magnet. Yes, we're going to have people breaking in. We're going to have bad stuff happen here, but that's just kind of the cost of doing ministry in the world. We are the people who we are, the people who have called to fill this up and use it for God's glory and to change every single heart that comes in here through through Christ. So reading this, as you might wonder about what Paul's inferring here. Paul If we're entrusted with the promises of God, what would happen then if we don't do our responsibility, if we don't believe the promises, we don't obey what God has told us? Let's say we don't do that. Does this cancel everything out that God's trying to do on the earth because he's going through us? In other words, here's the question. What happens to God's promises if the Jews are unbelieving and disobedient? Here Paul launches in verse three. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith or the faithfulness of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. In other words here, even if the Jews don't follow God's plan for them, God's unconditional promises in the oracles of God to the Jewish people will come to pass because they are unconditional. And God always tells the truth, that's what he's saying. Let God be true, but every man a liar. God always tells the truth. If he says something's gonna happen, you can, he is completely trustworthy, you can bank on it. Even when all men are liars, he tells the truth. So Paul quotes here from Psalm 51 in verse four, David, to basically say that in the end, God will still be glorified, even if the Jews are unrighteous. I can't get into full explanation here, but if God will still be glorified if the Jews are unrighteous, if the Jews don't fulfill their duties, God will still be glorified. Why? Because even if he has to judge them, it still shows that God is righteous. Even in judgment, it shows God's holiness and his righteousness. See, David, and that's kind of the point of this passage, David was judged for his sin, but his sin and judgment in the end brought glory to a holy God. So then Paul anticipates the log- logical argument after that. Okay, so Paul, wait a minute. Using that logic, you're saying if we sin, God gets glory still. If we do good, God gets glory, but if we sin, God also end up ends up getting glory because he's, he gets glory even in judgment. So here's the question. Why would God judge the Jew if God gets glory in our sin? Verse 5 but if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. And verse 6, again, one of the strongest uh, rejections you can give. God forbid. For then how shall God judge the world? Paul is saying here, I'm speaking as a man, okay? I'm speaking with man logic right now, not God logic. The Jew might say, how could God judge unbelievers? if their sin is just making God's mercy and grace look greater. You know, if, 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 if God's going to forgive or if he judges, either way, God's going to get glory, and, um, and, and we, we sin and God's still going to get then why? Why would God even get angry with us or pass judgment on us if all of this is always going to turn out to his glory? Uh, does, that doesn't make sense. And Paul says, this is absolutely not, God forbid, the strongest p- possible term for absolutely not. If this conclusion were true, then God would be unqualified to judge the world because he would then be a partner to sin. He would be al- allowing sin to take place and even wanting sin to take place. And that's just ridiculous. Then God would no longer be holy. And that's, that's the argument Paul says. If, if that were true, then God would be unholy and he would be a partner to sin. So some depraved people might take that, that logic another step. And listen to this one in verse seven. For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather, as we be slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come whose damnation is just. So some might even say, well, Paul, let's actually live in sin. That's even better because God looks Better. He looks more righteous. If we sin and we, we, we do bad, we're way down here. Wow, that really shines the light on how good God is. Paul says, some are slander- slanderously reporting that that's my message, that that's what I'm telling people. And in no uncertain terms, he takes this argument and torches it. Look what he says, whose damnation is just. If somebody says that, whatever they get, whatever damnation they get, they deserve every bit of it. Every bit of damnation they receive from God is, is worthy. Okay, okay, Paul, you've totally rejected all of that, so where are we at? This question, what has been proven now about the Jews and all mankind? Verse nine, what then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved, this is a legal term, this word proved, that it's a term they would use in the court of law. For we have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There it is. Paul has now hit everyone. (laughs) He has proven in a legal courtroom that the depravity of man is a true doctrine. There is none righteous. No, not even one. Sin and unrighteousness contaminates everything about us as humans. When we come into this world, we are sinners. Dr. Addison Leach used to illustrate this by saying that if the color of sin were blue, every aspect of us would be some shade of blue. And that is depravity. I have more to say, but we are out of time here, but Paul is about to deliver now the good news very soon. That there is hope to remove this sin. But he has to first get everybody and all of us in the same boat we're all in the same depravity boat we are all sinners and then the good news just shines brighter than it's ever shown before once we see who we really are then we we love jesus like we never have would you all bow your heads? we hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from god's word today you can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with jesus christ at www. Dot thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.